1: Live from our nation's capital.
2: All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases.
3: Bloomberg,
1: sound off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights.
4: Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution.
1: I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: Day one of Joe Biden's Washington, D.C. The president-elect prepares his team. This is he gives a new coronavirus task force briefing, plus Pfizer news, all about Pfizer, the economy, what's going on with the vaccination front. We have a complete, complete, uh, uh, complete, show. (laughs) There's the word, Kev. Uh, I'm caught up on on sleep. Joining us on the line, Tom Perez, chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, Mr. Chairman, congratulations.
5: Oh, thank you, Kevin. Uh, uh, I think this is great for the nation, great for all families dealing with coronavirus and the economic fallout. And uh, the president-elect, as you said earlier, is getting right to work dealing with the crises of the moment.
2: Well, I want to play for you what President-elect Joe Biden, who made his first announcements on the Biden-Harris Coronavirus Task Force earlier today, uh, he spoke from the Queen Theater in Wilmington, Delaware. Take a listen to President-elect Joe Biden.
6: I will spare no effort to turn this pandemic around once we're sworn in on January 20th to get our kids back to school safely, our business is growing, and our economy running at full speed again. And to get an approved vaccine manufactured and distributed as quickly as possible to as many Americans as possible.
2: And and, uh, Chairman Perez, Eric Wasson, my colleague, reports on the Bloomberg Terminal that meanwhile, you've got this news that Pfizer has a vaccine that has a 90 percent approval. But. Just as that major development comes, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that Congress should pass a limited stimulus bill before the end of 2020 in the wake of encouraging data on that specific vaccine. Uh, it, it it shows, sir, more opposition and divide on stimulus even in wake of this vaccine and the remarks from the president-elect. Well,
5: it, it's time for... Uh yeah, folks on the other side of the aisle do acknowledge, and I appreciate um, Senator Collins, uh, Senator Romney, um, former President Bush, and others uh, who, have now, who have acknowledged that Gary uh, Joe Biden is going to be the next president. Yeah. Um, so many others uh, who have acknowledged that Joe Biden won the election. And he won it fair and square, period. Uh, and it's a decisive win. His margin, I think, when all the votes are counted, is going to end up being... Uh, pretty close to Barack Obama's margin in 2012. Uh, this is the fourth time, only the fourth time since, I think, 1900, that an incumbent elected uh, president has been defeated in uh, in a reelect elect effort. Uh, so this is a remarkable and decisive victory. And what people want is a leader who's going to deliver results on the challenges that matter most. And that's why you saw the president-elect get right to work today on the coronavirus. We should have had a stimulus bill uh, months ago. And as you know, the the Democrats passed the stimulus bill, the the second stimulus bill, the HEROES Act, I think now over six months ago. Uh, And Mitch McConnell is still uh, playing the the slowdown game. That is uh, not what the American people need. Uh, We will, I'm heartened, Uh, about the news from Pfizer. But we know it will take time. And uh, so many uh, families don't have the luxury of time right now. And that's why the vice president's getting right to work. I hope that uh, uh, Leader McConnell uh, will actually come to the table in good faith. You know, in in past presidencies, you get the president himself uh, to come to the table when you had
2: situations like this, but you know, this president basically at the golf course. I want to I want to get you to respond. I want to get you to respond to what Leader McConnell said earlier today about the president not conceding. Here, here's Leader McConnell.
7: We have the system in place to consider concerns, and President Trump is 100% within his rights to look into allegations of irregularities and weigh his legal options.
2: Uh, and, and we actually have some more. So here, here, here's McConnell again.
7: Let's not have any lectures, no lectures about how the president should immediately, cheerfully accept preliminary election results from the same characters who just spent four years refusing to accept the validity of the last election.
2: Great job from our executive producer, Christine Berada, for pulling that sound so quickly. Tom Perez, your response, chairman of the DNC.
5: Well, uh, we're not asking we're not asking someone to be happy or sad. We're asking someone to acknowledge the reality. And the reality is that Joe Biden is millions of votes ahead. Uh, Look at what Scott Walker said in Wisconsin. Scott Walker is the former Republican governor. He correctly pointed out that there have been two recounts in Wisconsin over uh, the past 10 years in various races, including in 2016. And those recounts move the needle somewhere between 100 and 250 votes. That's not enough. We need to get to work on the serious problems confronting America. Uh, Donald Trump was a sore winner in 2016, so it shouldn't surprise anyone that he is a sore loser now. He can weigh his legal options, but we need to look at the reality right now. The reality is that Joe Biden won, and we've got a lot of work to do, so I hope that... Uh, Leader McConnell will come to the table uh, with uh, the president-elect with Uh, Speaker Pelosi, so we can get to work, roll up our sleeves, and address the pandemic. It's getting worse, not better.
2: I only have two more minutes with you, and I'm so grateful that you're kicking off the show for me today. So I just want to get these two questions quickly, because I spoke with a source earlier this afternoon who told me uh, that really this is all about Georgia for the Republicans, and that the president not conceding is all about trying to get the base out in Georgia on January 5th.
5: Well, I mean, it's really... um Putting uh, a political interest, if that's the case, ahead of the national interest. I mean, this, this is, we are in the middle of a pandemic. We just crossed a 10 million case threshold today. We have healthcare on the docket of the United States Supreme Court tomorrow, Kevin. Yep. Republicans want to do away with coverage for people with pre existing conditions. What I'm here to tell the voters of Georgia is there's one set of candidates who want to protect your health care and there's another set of candidates who want to do away with your health care that's what we're going to be talking about in georgia and we should get to work on a stimulus package to help people who've lost their loved ones they've lost their jobs and frankly they're losing hope and they've lost patience and they are right to have lost patience in the republican failure to come to the table
2: chairman pres i gotta ask you this last question Would you go into the administration? Could we see? Would Would you go back? I mean, obviously, you've served in the cabinet before, but is that something you're interested? I gotta ask. I gotta ask. Don't shoot the messenger.
5: Well, Kevin, I have given literally (laughs) zero thought to that for the following reason:
2: we need to
5: win elections, and and when people are thinking ahead, when we haven't finished, we have we have the Senate uh, to look out for in, uh, two months here or less than two months. And, and that is where my singular focus is. So, uh, this ain't about Tom Perez. This is about (laughs) our democracy and making sure that we can win the Senate.
2: (laughs) All right. Chairman Tom Perez, uh, chairman of the democratic national committee. What did you, what was when you, when you got the result, I only have like 30 seconds left, but did you, what did you do? Did you have pizza? Did you have a drink? What does the chairman of the democratic party do when the results come in? I prayed. Wow. Uh,
5: I was praying for the. On eagle's wings. Uh, I I know so many dreamers who were quite literally on the ballot, and I prayed in Thanksgiving that they will have hope that's what i did quite honestly And Kevin. we
2: should note and you and you and i have talked about this offline i mean uh, president elect joe biden is only the second catholic president in america's history and and for catholics of all political stripes that speech when he quoted on eagles wings i mean if you're catholic that song is famous i mean it is a very well, famous famous hymn
5: I, I will i will tell you one more thing i know you're you you have no more time the person yeah. who wrote that song performed that song at my wife and my wedding uh, 32 serious? years ago who wrote it Dan Schutte a guy named wow. Dan Schutte he was a former Jesuit he was a Jesuit uh, novice Damn. he didn't uh, he left uh, uh, the Jesuits before amazing he became, they played it uh, they played police.
2: it at my late grandmother Mimi's funeral so it's a, it's a hugely hugely Catholic famous hymn. alright Tom Perez I, I'm out of time thank you so much sir for your time coming up next more policy and politics I'm Kevin Cirilli this is Bloomberg one.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: We're going to touch on um, what's going on at the Pentagon as well with Secretary of Defense Esper being fired today. Uh, We'll get to that, I promise. It was a busy news day, folks, in Washington, D.C., plus the reports that President Trump is still going to hold rallies, potentially even in Georgia. We'll get to the political analysis uh, on that front as well. Uh, In the next hour with uh, Doug High and Kendra Barkoff-Lamy, who is the former press secretary to now president-elect Joe Biden. Um, And, of course, she's also worked for Senators Bob Casey and Dick Durbin. So we've got a great, great panel. Doug High, of course, an insider for Governor Hogan. Uh, That's in the next hour. But we got to start with the markets because stocks paired gains on concern that lawmakers will pass a smaller stimulus package after encouraging developments on the coronavirus vaccine front. I mentioned this earlier, but Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell came out and said that the positive developments from Pfizer could actually press them to a lower stimulus front because they feel that if the vaccine is 90 percent effective, that less financial assistance will be needed. The S&P 500 moved away from record levels after Senate Majority Leader McConnell said Congress should pass only a limited bill before the end of 2020. Meanwhile, the Fed Reserve warned I, but, sorry, let me. Let's go back. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve warned that asset prices in key markets could take a hit if the pandemic's economic impact worsens in coming months. The benchmark gauge still closed down at a two-month high amid strong trading volume on news the COVID-19 shot being developed by FI- Pfizer and Bio, Bio- Biontech. Uh, prevented over 90% of infections. The NASDAQ 100 fell amid a sell-off in giants such as Amazon and Netflix, highlighting the rotation from big tech. An equal weight measure of the S&P 500 had its best day ever relative to the cap-weighted index. I am tongue-tied today. Buy on tech. I cannot—I think I need some more rest I think I need some more rest. All right. Let's take a listen to the New York Stock Exchange President, Stacy Cunningham, who spoke to Bloomberg earlier about the market action today. Here she is.
8: The big takeaway there was the market was reacting to the view that the election was resolved. And so that uncertainty and being able to move on is certainly a positive with respect to market reactions and, and having that clarity. So that's, that has been well received by the market so far.
2: And I want to bring in now Ed Stringham, who is president of the American Institute for Economic Research, and he is also a professor of economic organizations and innovation at Trinity College. Hey, Ed. Pfizer. Hello, hello. Making moves on the market with (laughs) McDonald.
3: Yeah, it's quite something to see uh, the Dow up by 3% today. Uh, Just, uh, I think a lot of people are really happy that – there's not going to be some of this uh, maybe political turmoil that was potentially going to be clouding uh, investors. And I think people just like certainty. And uh, to see that, that uh, the vaccine might help reopen the market again, I think that's another great sign for people to be looking at. So right now we've got uh, record stock prices and i think that's a good sign for the future
2: you know in terms of where the stimulus talks go because here in washington dc that's all really anybody cares about for leader mcconnell to come out and say that he believes that this positive development on the vaccination front means let that pass a standalone bill for lack of a better term and a, and a more focused version that that sets the parameters of the lame duck debate does it not
3: yeah, sure. And I do think that uh, you know, certain people do benefit from various uh types of spending, but at some point the government is just going to run out of money and we can't can't always continue to spend our way for uh to prosperity. Someone's going to have to pay the bills uh in the future, and that's that's us, that's taxpayers. So, the idea that we can actually get uh out of this just through spending, I think was tenuous. So now we now have an alternative, which is actually reopening the economy. So I'm super excited about Pfizer. And uh, uh, if if we can actually just reopen the economy naturally, get people back to work naturally, I think that's a win for everybody.
2: Ed Stringham's on the line. He's the president of the American Institute for Economic Research. And uh, let's talk about the financial stability report, because that was released on Monday. The Fed is warning that asset prices in key markets could still take a hit if the coronavirus pandemic's economic impact worsens in coming months. Most assets have maintained strong levels so far as investor appetites increased and the U.S. government intervened to support the nation's financial system. This, of course, according to the Fed's twice yearly financial stability report. What was your big takeaways in addition to our Jesse Hamilton and Rich Miller's reporting from the financial stability report, Ed?
3: Well, you know, it's always possible that that markets are mispriced, but I do think that uh, the best guess of future profitability of corporations of the American economy is current stock prices. And the fact that they've been recovering for the you know better part of this year, and now they're pretty much at record highs, I think is a, a, a really great sign. People are ready to get back to work. We see job um, job numbers have been improving over the, steadily over the last uh, weeks and, and months, and so people want to get back to work, and the more that People think that the economy is going to reopen. I think that's why we see these high stock prices. And I don't think that I would be as worried as maybe uh, Powell would be suggesting.
2: So what in terms of where the virus stands? Because we're getting so much new news, but not enough data, would I say? Would you agree with that, that that, that investors right now don't have a lot of data except just a lot of he- positive headlines uh, in terms of Pfizer? Um, but in terms of the stimulus, we still don't have a vote. We still don't have a, a proposal in, in the sense of where things could be headed or when the vote could happen. But we do still continue to have this uptick in cases. So I guess that's really the only data that we have. But where do you see the domestic coronavirus cases impacting some of the uh, volatility in the markets?
3: Well, you know, we have a lot more testing than we had earlier this year. And so there's, there was a lot more unreported cases that we didn't know about. And so people are now m- much more aware of what we have. That means the uh, fatality rate has been going down. We're well aware of, of things that weren't uh, we didn't know before. So that's good. And in terms of uh, certain states, obviously, we're seeing surges. But you've got a lot of the states in the Northeast. Uh, things tend to be uh, 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 it moving in a ch- ch- good direction. So I think that... Uh, that People are ready to get back to work, and people are getting back to work. The unemployment rates are, are dropping. They're still at pretty high historic levels. But uh, in terms of the data, I think we don't need to be extremely worried just about the cases alone. It's actually the death rate is what matters, and, and by all measures that's been falling in most states.
2: Ed, what do you think? Just so, uh, uh, not to get you political or anything but just in the minute that i have left with you uh even if democrats win uh, even if let's say democrats pick up the special election runoffs in georgia the the senate still has enough conservatives in it that it would make it very hard for a president-elect biden to to get you know someone like a treasury secretary elizabeth warren no uh
3: yeah that's that's actually my own opinion i think one of the signs that we're going to be in a good situation is is maybe the best option we have, a lot of my colleagues say, is gridlock. So <laughs> I think that uh, the um, tax decreases and the financial deregulation of the uh, current president, I think those were good for markets. I think his tariffs were bad for markets. With a new president coming in, it looks like he might be a little bit more pro-free trade, yeah. which will be good for markets. And then if he doesn't put in someone like Warren, <laughs> I think <laughs> that would also be good for yeah. markets as well. So maybe right, the best Ed. we can hope for is gridlock.
2: luck. All right, Ed. Appreciate your time as always. Ed Stringham, appreciate it. Professor Trinity College and, of course, the president of American
0: Institute for Economic Research. More next. This is Bloomberg 991.
9: Live
1: from our nation's capital. All
2: talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest
1: pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg, sound off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights.
4: Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution.
1: I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: Washington, D.C. wakes up to President-elect Joe Biden's town. What does it mean? He announces his coronavirus task force, this, upon fresh developments on Pfizer's vaccination front. They say they've got a shot that has a 90% effective rate. We've got complete, complete political analysis, market analysis, and the fiscal stimulus front. A Senate majority leader, Mitch McConnell, speaks earlier today on a host of different issues. We've got an all-star panel and a lot to cover. We begin tonight with positive developments on the coronavirus vaccination front, as Pfizer has announced earlier today that they have a shot that has a 90% effective rate, more than 90% effective rate, And that has driven the conversation here inside of Washington, D.C. Earlier today, President elect Joe Biden speaking about how he would tackle the pandemic after announcing the Biden Harris Coronavirus Task Force. He spoke from the Queen Theater in Wilmington, Delaware. Here he is.
6: I will spare no effort to turn this pandemic around once we're sworn in on January 20th, to get our kids back to school safely. Our business is growing and our economy running at full speed again. And to get an approved vaccine manufactured and distributed as quickly as possible to as many Americans as possible. Then
2: Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell weighed in about the impact that this would have on fiscal negotiations. And what he said, folks, essentially was he believes that Congress should pass a limited stimulus bill before the end of 2020 in wake of encouraging data on the COVID-19 vaccination, uh, as well as a slide in, in unemployment to 6.9%. I want to start there before we get to the, the political issues of the day relating to whether or not President Trump will concede, as well as the Georgia implications as well. But let's begin with the policy because that's Incredibly important um, as we navigate through this. Doug Heise with me, former deputy chief of staff for former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor and former communications director for the RNC. And Kendry Barkoff Lammy, who is the former press secretary to vice president, now president elect Joe Biden, and former spokesperson to Senators Bob Casey and Dick Durbin. Kendra, I'll begin with you. Welcome to the program. In terms of where there's only so much the president elect can do in terms of trying to get Congress. To pass a fiscal stimulus deal, but in the immediate short term, before January twentieth, that's going to be policymakers and a lot of Americans are going to be focused on that. Kendra,
4: well, well, thank you for having me. First off, of course. Um, Look, I think uh, first and foremost, (laughs) Americans are looking for someone who is going to respect our democracy and our institutions, and who's not going to lie. Uh, and who's going to be truthful to them. And I think that's a huge step forward to begin with. Um, but in terms of immediate actions, look, he's made it very clear that the first thing he we need to work on is uh, COVID and tackling this global pandemic. It's why he launched this task force today with respective uh, medical and health personnel from across this country, because that is getting that under control is is the most important thing. Obviously, the fiscal bill is also extremely important, but I think that will also come once we start to get this COVID pandemic under control.
2: And, Doug, I mean, she, I, I, I think when you look at the fiscal stimulus, while many people want it immediately... If they wait till after January 20th, they could get another massive fiscal stimulus uh, when the president-elect is in there, uh, even if it's a it's a narrow path in, in the Senate, Doug.
9: Yeah, and, and look, one of the realities that, that we're going to face on the Republican side of things is a lot of Republicans, you're starting to see this already, are finding religion on debt and debt, deficits and spending, yeah. uh, which went out the window for four years under Donald Trump. So you know, if we can get a deal sooner rather than later, it, I would guess that it would be a larger deal because Republicans, who especially those who are looking at running for president, are going to be deficit hawks again all of a sudden.
2: But I, but do you think that starts immediately? Because if you look in the Senate in particular, Doug, I want to follow up with you on this because this is incredibly important and it really could set the stage for uh, when President-elect Biden's sworn in, which is do you think that there will still be an appetite for some of those moderate Republicans to have to fall in line with the deficit hawks, uh, even as people are going to be wanting to get back to work, and even you've got the Fed coming out today and saying that if there isn't more fiscal stimulus, that this that this virus could really wreak havoc in terms of uh, in terms of the the economic clout on this.
9: Yeah, I think, you know, ultimately what, what we could see with this is that it will affect what the deal is, not whether or not a deal passes. Um, because we're already starting to see some Republicans who are out there talking um, about spending in a way that they didn't for three years uh, or for four years. Um, so, so now that that's changed, what that deal ultimately may be will be where they may have their greatest impact.
2: Kendra, come in here. In terms of the the, the president elect's first 100 days initiative on on an economic front, what do you anticipate uh, will be will be something that that really, from an economic standpoint, is something that he's going to push through? Is it, is it infrastructure? Is it fiscal stimulus?
4: Look, I think he's going to um, you know give to these communities and and work from the ground up, right? I think he's going to. I think transportation and infrastructure is going to be a, a key part of that. I think you're going to look for him to invest in the schools. Um, even though children aren't in schools, my hope is, you know, through this guidance and through this COVID task force, they'll be able to work on guidance so that children can safely and responsibly go back to schools. But part of that safety and responsibly is having uh, plans in place, which includes, you know, uh, physical, uh, you know, barriers and, uh, but also computers and, and, and workspaces that, that children can go back. And so I do think that there will be some sort of, you know, on the ground, giving to local communities, uh, counties, mayors that that can really sort of uh, work from the ground up to to help this this fiscal problem that we're and, that we're facing.
2: And I go back to the to the Supreme Court ruling just the other week, which essentially said that the Treasury Department has to release where the money for the PPP went, as well as uh, just to have some more transparency on that. I think Kendra just raises a really good point about. Putting a face on the fiscal stimulus, I think, you know, whether it was for political reasons or every fall on, the, on this, but whether it was political or whether it was a lack of or just the, the, the speed in which all of this was happening back in March and April and May, there wasn't really a face in terms of there wasn't like a Dr. Anthony Fauci for the fiscal stimulus front that people knew where to go. In order to, to to find some some economic relief that was that was made available, I, I I guess you could say Fed Chair Powell. I mean, he gave interviews. I remember seeing him on the Today Show, which is really really unheard of to have the central bank on you know the 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 mainstream morning shows it is really remarkable all right uh quickly just before we're gonna we're gonna scatter this in throughout the next hour kendra where were you on election night give us your your memory uh, or actually i guess friday and saturday when he was declared officially uh when he passed the threshold where were you what was your memory of the moment
4: um, you know, I was I was in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, I have two small little ones. The first I actually had while I was working for Vice President Joe Biden, um, <laughs> and the second uh, subsequent to that time. And um, we were in Alexandria, Virginia, and we were hiking around um, and just being so outside. You were outside, it was, it was obviously, a, it was a beautiful day. Masks on, we were masked <laughs> up, um, but we were hiking around, and um, I, found I out started on getting phone? my. I, w- I was not on my phone for a hot second, and then, of course, it started blowing <laughs> up, and my, my lovely, wonderful husband took the children for a little while so that I could sort of pay attention to <laughs> all the news. But, you know, and then Sunday, I took my children to Mount Vernon. Um, oh, that's cool. Which I felt like was such yeah. an, an, a historic place to take them to um, yeah. after such a historic win. All right, stick around because we wondering.
2: got let's leave it there because we go, we're going to talk about that and that historic breakthrough coming up next Kendra Stays Doug Stays I'm Kevin Cirilli you're listening to Bloomberg 99.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg sound on with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 991 and 105.7 FM HD2 I'm Kevin Cirilli
2: chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio You know Kendra Barkoff Lammy's with me she used to be the press secretary for then vice president Joe Biden. Now, of course, he's the president-elect, uh, and she's also worked with Senator Bob Casey, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, my home state, and Dick Durbin as well. Doug High is with me as well, Republican insider, former uh, uh, Governor Hogan insider, I got to start saying, and a former deputy chief of staff to former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, as well as the comms director for the RNC. Doug, you tweeted this out. You got Kendra Champagne. You got a champagne to celebrate <laughs> the win. So I guess I guess well, bipartisanship isn't dead.
9: Well, you know, I'm just trying to score points now that she's newly more powerful. Um, <laughs> you, know,
2: you know what? I, that I was saw... the most honest answer I've ever gotten on this show. You know what divided government <laughs> that means in Washington? That you, know? <laughs> you know what divided government means in Washington? All the lobbyists and consultants are are thinking, "Phew, they still need us." Go ahead, Doug.
9: <laughs> well. You know, I heard all the horns honking and everything, which is is kind of how I found out um, about Trump's win. But I I saw a stat today that... You mean Biden's win? um, Yes, excuse me, Biden's win. In D.C., (laughs) they, they said that the amount of champagne that was sold this weekend was more than the last two New Year's Eves combined. So, wow. So um, I don't think that should be a big surprise to anybody. But it, it was a lot. I had some, and I wanted to make sure that Kendra and Jonathan did as well. Well, the
2: weather has just been gorgeous. I don't want to jinx it, but, I mean, just the weather in and of itself, you know, it was definitely... You know, remember the the cold that we had? So it was a beautiful day, another beautiful day here in Washington, D.C. All right, we got to get to the political front. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that President Trump is, quote, 100% within his rights, end quote, to consider challenging results of the presidential election and that he has no obligation to accept projections based on vote counts that Joe Biden won. Take a listen to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell earlier today. Here he is.
7: We have the system in place to consider concerns. And President Trump is 100 percent within his rights to look into allegations of irregularities and weigh his legal options.
2: We have some more from Leader McConnell. Here's what else he had to say.
7: Let's not have any lectures, no lectures about how the president should immediately, cheerfully accept preliminary election results from the same characters who just spent four years refusing to accept the validity of the last election. These were
2: his first public remarks that McConnell said no states have certified the results of the election, even as he pointed out that Republicans won in Senate and House races that they were expected to lose. Other prominent members of the GOP have congratulated Biden, including former President George W. Bush, as have business groups that usually are aligned uh, with Republicans. I should note Governor Larry Hogan is also a Republican from Maryland who congratulated uh biden as well um doug is it is it wise for republicans to do this i spoke with a source earlier today who told me this is all about the georgia runoff elections they want to make sure that republicans are, are remain uh activated to to show up to the polls uh and that donors still want to keep a a republican senate majority so i guess two-fold question one is it wise and two is this all about georgia
9: Well, I don't think it's all about Georgia, nor do do I think it's necessarily wise. Republicans win special elections in Georgia, especially runoff elections in Georgia. So they shouldn't have that kind of a broad concern to where they're criticizing the Republican uh, secretary of state in Georgia. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, But if you look at what Mitch McConnell said, it's also what he doesn't say. He's very precise when he uses his language. He says that Trump is within his rights to investigate irregularities. He's not urging the president to do so. He's not saying there are irregularities. Um, I think McConnell understands, you know, the vice that Republicans find themselves in with Trump, even as we move to a lame duck Donald Trump. They are always in in between a rock and a hard place, and Trump doesn't make it any easier.
2: Well, okay. Before I get to Kendra on this, but in terms of the dynamics at play here, there this is this is the political question, which is okay, we're staring down midterm elections for the Republican Party in 2022. Republicans feel emboldened that they could be on the cusp of a, of winning back control of the House, or they at least made gains in the House. So there's that. And then, yeah, there is this open primary question in 2024. I don't want to get way ahead of ourselves. But when Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican of Texas, is getting retweeted by President Trump for comments that he made on Fox News, uh, you know, it typically primaries are about turning out the base. And, The president is making this right now a base issue, Doug.
9: He he is, but it's also because it's a very personal issue to him. The reality is Donald Trump is never going to give the kind of gracious concession speech that we would expect um, and have seen from other presidents who've lost. He's not going to do things in the normal way that, that we've seen them done in our history. We know that. Donald Trump doesn't want to admit that he lost the election. So it has to be somebody else's fault, ergo voter fraud. But I guess,
2: I guess, analytically speaking, the point that I would make is based upon the conversations that I had today is that there is, there's a political calculation being made, as it relates to Georgia and also as it relates to primaries to set him up, according to some of his advisors, uh, that he would want to play a kingmaker conservative role, which is this is the interesting development. Uh, Kendrick, come in here. Does it undermine at all the president-elect's ability to put together an administration? I mean, it doesn't really. And I think we're all kind of learning that in real time. But do you think it undermines president-elect Biden if um, if President Trump doesn't concede?
4: Look, I think that uh, president-elect Biden has been sending signals from the start, from Tuesday night, his speech to Wednesday, that he does not want to be an ideological foe, that he can work across the aisle. He's done it before. We've seen him do it before. I know that he and Mitch McConnell have had a relationship in the past. Um, You know, Mitch McConnell went to his son, Beau Biden's funeral um, as a Republican, and, you know, I, I, I do think that at some point, once Trump, you know, finishes having, I hate to say it, his minor little temper tantrums and, um, you know, Vice President-elect Biden is sworn in, I, I do I, – and maybe I'm just an eternal optimist, as as my <laughs> former boss used to say, but I, I am hopeful that they will come to the table because I, I do – Hope that they realize that that is the only way that they can get things done for the American people.
9: Yeah, I think, um, yeah, and I, I think it's yeah. going to be
4: a little while, but I think it can happen at some point. And I, th- I think, you know, I
2: think the political. I think what I gathered today on the reporting that I did was that the pol- there's a political calculation in Georgia, as well as in the long term in the 2024 cycle and midterms before that. All great points uh, from Doug and Kendra coming up next. Much more. I'm Kevin cerilli You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You know, I was at Martin's Tavern on a Sunday having some, some coffee and french fries with some of my friends. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's so interesting because we, we all forget, uh, no matter how long you live in this town, you always forget it changes. Every two years, who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out, you know, what's old is suddenly new. The Obama era making a comeback. But you know, there's a lot of young staffers who are with uh President elect Biden who are gonna be starting their careers as well. It's it's you know, we always forget it, but uh we were reminded of it at Martin's Tavern on uh Sunday as we as we all now are entered the transition period of Washington, D.C., and still another incredibly important election on January 5th. Uh, so a lot to get through, a lot to get through. But it's good to have places like Martin's, you know, that are still there, no matter what, through it all. Okay, Some someone who will not be finishing out the administration is Defense Secretary Mark Esper. He was fired by tweet. On Monday, as President Trump went after a top aide that he blamed for not supporting him sufficiently, the president said he's naming Christopher Miller, the director of National Counterterrorism Center, as acting Pentagon chief. So anytime there's a development... On this develop on this front, we bring in Guy Snodgrass, the Stoic CEO of Defense Analytics, former director of communications and chief speechwriter to Secretary of Defense James Mattis, and author of the great new book, if I do say so myself, "Top Guns: Top Ten Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit." Get it? Read it? Give it? It makes a great uh, if you have like a, a Father's Day gift, even though it's not Father's Day. Guy, um, analysis for me. Fired by tweet, Secretary Esper.
10: Yeah, my first uh, analysis is I'm a little worried that you're eating French fries while you're drinking coffee. Um, I just can't get anyone who Guy, you've known
2: me for a while. That's that's the Kev (laughs) diet. All I do is eat my fries, drink my coffee, keep going, keep trucking, a foot in front of the other. Go ahead, buddy.
10: Yeah, I got to tell you, this one uh, kind of came out of left field. It caught a lot of us by surprise. And we all knew, if we heard during the break, that Secretary Esper had been on the outs with President Trump, especially since June 1st, when he had come out vocally against President Trump's desire to use the U.S. military in a, fu- in a fairly public fashion. What makes this kind of last-minute firing and, and moving Chris Miller over from NCTC where he's the director now to be the acting Secretary of Defense, functionally the fourth Secretary of Defense that he's had in four years, is that, you know, now you've, you've taken someone who's bounced around DC very rapidly over the last two to three years, and he's kind of in a caretaker role. So you had Secretary Esper, who by all accounts, up until June 1st, had retained President Trump's trust and confidence, uh, who obviously has been at the helm for the Department of Defense and knows how the machinery is currently operating. And during this very critical transition phase, as you just referenced, between one administration and to another administration, you've lost the head of the Department of Defense. And so that's going to cause quite a bit of chaos uh, as they seek to move forward once this transition kicks off.
2: Is it chaos or is it a headache? Do you know what I mean? What. Uh, because there's only three months left, but I mean, obviously the decisions that people at the Pentagon make are incredibly important. Yeah, and and I think
10: that's a great—I'm glad you said that. You know, I don't want to overplay the severity of it. All that's going to depend on the world gets a vote, right? And especially when you talk about foreign affairs and national security. So if we continue, as we have over the last few months, where it's been relatively steady, knocking on wood, uh, then I think he's simply in that caretaker role, and it's more of a headache. Uh, and it just it just compounds the— rapid turnover of leadership and senior positions within a department. That's been a uh, just kind of a calling card during the Trump administration. It's made it very difficult to establish clearly defined policies for the members of the national security community and for the military. On the sure. other hand, if you yeah. see a nation who, who suddenly decides to challenge America abroad, uh, that's where it could become squirrely very quickly. And that's going to elevate functionally uh, General Milley as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, his role very
2: quickly so let me follow up on that because from a messaging standpoint for folks serving in the national intelligence community what message does this send them today because is this do you interpret this guy with your experience and your level of uh, and who you talk to is this a policy switch or is this a petty grievance aired
10: I think it's the latter, to be honest with you. we would heard rumblings about this for the last few months. That yeah, I've heard President rumblings, Trump was yeah, we've all,
2: And i got to be yeah. honest, i got to be and transparent it, here. I mean, the, the, this is not a surprise by any means because it was almost a matter of, of when, or if, if not what, what, a matter of just when it would happen and not if it would happen. Go ahead, Guy.
10: Yeah, so I agree with you in that we'd all talked about this for several months, that uh, we knew, again, that Secretary Esper was on the outs and and that there was a likelihood he could be fired. But again, you, you're posed with the question, why? Uh, during this next phase, as you mentioned, you're winding down your administration. You know, why make that other than to settle a score and possibly air a petty grievance? Um, to to your point, though, I mean, before June 1st, Secretary Esper, and in fact, there had been kind of that running joke that even President Trump himself at the podium at the White House called him Jesper, right? Because he had been widely seen as someone who championed President Trump's administrative policies. He had facilitated moving money from the Department of Defense to fund the southern border wall. I mean, so there were a lot of areas where there was policy alignment. And functionally, Secretary Esper was seeking to carry that out on its behalf so no no one should read too much into a policy difference here it should i, I believe it just be seen as uh clearing out esper and possibly others to follow from the administration who weren't deemed to be sufficiently loyal
2: on the other hand to to folks who are supporters of the president they would argue well he should have been more he should have been more loyal so is he in his right to do this well i'm not sure um when you say he should have been more loyal that's what de- the his only... to his ardent supporters
10: Sure. So, uh, you know, I think that's where everyone in this administration has found themselves at one point or another in that kind of vice, right, where you have uh, utmost loyalty, let's call it that, for the president of the United States. And of course, from a policy standpoint, carrying out the directives of the president, you owe the president of the United States that. I mean, you serve it at his pleasure in this case. On the other side, you have rule of law, you have uh, what's truly best for an organization, you have that advice and counsel that happens behind closed doors. And sometimes we've seen, because President Trump likes to be a very public leader, he likes to think extemporaneously in the public sphere, you know, use of Twitter, everything else, sometimes those things start to blur pretty rapidly. We've seen even people like Attorney General Bill Barr, who has widely held on to President Trump's you know, ear and has, has almost near universally been praised, towards the tail end of the election suddenly was falling out of favor because he was perceived as not moving quickly enough on some of the investigations that the Department of Justice was overseeing. So, you know, I think that's where the, you know, Secretary Esper was trying to diffuse a very challenging situation. He understands he has an obligation to the men and women, the millions of men and women in the U.S. military he leads uh, to make sure that they retain the trust and confidence of the American public. If you recall, the very first book I wrote, Holding the Line, that was something that was a major theme in that book, was that The U.S. military has long enjoyed the trust and confidence of the American public, and you don't want to see it being used as a partisan tool. And so both Secretary Mattis and Secretary Esper uh, and even Secretary Shanahan, who was the acting secretary for a period of time in between, the two of them, have always, in the back of their mind, been very sensitive to how the military is being used and how it's being perceived in that civilian-military relationship. Because once you lose that trust and confidence of the American public, it could take years, if not decades, to restore and rebuild it.
2: That's a that's an incredibly important point, especially to all of the incredibly brave men and women, and of course families that are uh, impacted by by those decisions. Final question, just ninety seconds. A uh, President Biden, what does a, a relationship with China uh, look like under a Biden administration? Guy Snodgrass.
10: Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna see as soon as he makes his pick and announces who his Secretary of Defense nominee is going to be. I think that'll provide a lot of clarity. So far, what we've seen throughout the campaign is that. A president-elect Biden is going to continue to uh, keep the pedal down on some of these China discussions, to hold China accountable for, uh, you know, imposing on territorial integrity of other nations in the Indo-Pacific, and making sure that we still restore and maintain a strong relationship with South Korea, Japan, Australia, and others. Uh, I think one of the names that keeps you know floating to the top very quickly is uh, Michelle Flournoy. She's seen as one of a handful of front runners for that role. She also has a um, you know, she wants to be strong against China. And I think that once we, if we do see her formally nominated, uh, we're going to learn very quickly what she intends to do.
2: Absolutely. And she is, of course, the former deputy assistant secretary of defense for strategy under the Clinton administration, administration and the undersecretary of defense for policy in the Obama administration. Guy, you've been taking it easy or are you just ramping up again quickly?
10: So I'm ramping up, my friend. It's great to be back with you. Thank
2: you. I will call you later. Guy Snodgrass, CEO of Defense Analytics, former director of comms, and chief speechwriter to former Secretary Mattis. I'm Kevin Cirilli. What's on the panel's radar? That's coming up next. Great song. Great, great song. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Time now for my favorite part of the program What is on the Panel's Radar? Uh, Doug Heis with me, former Deputy Chief of Staff for former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor and former Communications Director for the RNC. Doug, how's uh, Governor Hogan doing? Before I ask you, what's on your radar?
9: Well, I I think he's, you know, he's moving in in the right direction where a lot of other Republicans need to be, which is we've got the results. We know that Biden won. We can we can say this with confidence and it's not somehow an abandonment of President Trump. Facts are stubborn, stubborn things. And we know what they are. So let's let's move forward. And I'm glad that he was one of the first voices out there. I'm not surprised.
2: Is he going to run? Is he is he moving forward to a 2024 run?
9: I have no idea.
2: All right. Honest. Kendra barkoff Lamy, former press secretary to the now president-elect Joe Biden and a former spokesperson for Senators Bob Casey and Dick Durbin. Kendra, before I ask you what's on your radar, who do you think was the biggest winner in the Biden campaign in the sense of who's going to have a really internal key role in the uh, administration? Who are some names that, that you think deserve some shout outs?
4: Uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, there were so many of them, right? There were so many that he surrounded himself with. I think you'll see some some names that'll sort of resurface. Um, Ron Klain, I think you'll see back around. Obviously, uh, Kate Bedingfield, who's the communications director and the deputy chief of staff, I think you'll see her. Simone Sanders, obviously, was really key. She was out there on TV sort of talking about this. Um So I think you'll see a, a few of those those people sort of resurface back in the White House as as they move the country forward.
2: All right. Now let's get what's on their radar. Doug, what's on your radar?
9: Well, my radar is all about stimulus and, and whether or not there's a COVID relief package that happens in the coming weeks or if we have to wait till um, 2021 for that to happen. And again, as we talked earlier, the contours of what that bill may be uh, may differ between now and, and in the Biden administration. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if there can be movement on this.
2: Well, and I got to jump in here because it's uh, and and we've talked about this over the last couple of days, uh, folks, on this program, as other countries have grappled with this, the U.K., Germany, France. But the U.S. surpassed 10 million cases on Monday and appears poised to hit record hospitalizations later this week with numbers soaring in populous Midwest states and along the Mexico border. Um, And President-elect Joe Biden obviously announced a new 13-member coronavirus task force. But New Jersey halted indoor dining after 10 p.m. And New York State is focusing on new hotspots, including the Finger Lakes region. I mention this is because as states continue to see an uptick in cases and as Jersey takes action, New York State takes action and other states are going to have to do that, that could really put pressure on lawmakers from those states to try to get to some type of an agreement in the lame duck session, right, Doug?
9: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, Kendra and I last month wrote a piece for the Washington Post. Part, one of the things that Congress needs to do is it needs to make uh, COVID testing mandatory for all lawmakers and staff who are going in the Capitol. Not just because members of Congress um, are are at risk.
7: I mean, staffers. these cramped
9: environments. Absolutely. The staffers um, are freaked out. Well, what we see that happens is a member of Congress goes home, they go in airports, they ride trains, and they take it, whether they've gotten it from a staffer or from another member, they take it back to their communities with them. And so one way to help stop this spread, and we have continuity of government questions as well, is for members of Congress to make mandatory testing for all lawmakers and staff who are entering any of the Capitol buildings.
2: I'm so surprised, genuinely surprised, that that wasn't the case to begin with, Kendra. I really am.
4: I could not disagree. I could I could not agree with you more. Excuse me. Um, And it's and, you know, to Doug's point on this, too, I mean, it's 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 staffers of the for the, you know, senators and for the members of Congress. But we're talking about cafeteria workers. We're talking about, you know, janitors. Mm -hmm. We're talking about, um, you know, the architects of the Capitol folks who are not tested for this, the police who stand outside or stand inside. Um, the Capitol Police aren't tested every day, and you know I think that it ha- this has to be done. Uh, the NBA
2: did a better job is, than Congress.
4: It is it is remarkable to me that they have nothing in place still. To test for members of Congress. And we've seen that members of Congress are not immune. So, I know. You know, I know, we've seen that the White uh, House is not immune. And it just creates a
2: headache. It's I mean, you know, it, uh, from an efficiency standpoint, beyond just the the so obvious public health concerns. Kendra, what's on your radar?
4: Well, look, I think uh, one of the things that you'll you'll see pretty quickly early on in the Biden administration is um, his work um, both on climate change but also racial equality. I think these Mm -hmm. are things that um, we have seen um, in the news of late. Obviously, climate change is an important issue that we must deal with and deal with quickly and and expeditiously. But I also think that there's a way that that we can do that to uh, bring back jobs. Um, And it doesn't have to be a job killer. So I think you'll see um, some things put in place probably pretty quickly about climate change, but also on on racial inequality Um, and uh, some opportunities, some business opportunities, some uh, economic gaps that I think they'll look to fill pretty quickly and and pretty early on.
2: And we should know, I mean, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is going to have a key role there. As well, I mean, and just uh, a, a, an historic moment, an American moment, not just a Democratic moment, an historic moment for America, the first female vice president, Kendra.
4: The first female vice president, but the first vice president of color. I yeah. mean, that both of those things are, are truly remarkable Absolutely. And, and truly historic Um and you know i think she will be given a, a big role you know you saw how um uh president obama gave joe biden some really important uh roles of things that he dealt with while he was vice president and i think you'll you'll see similar sort of relationship between the two where you'll have her being put in charge of some critically important things there's a lot of work that needs
2: to be done. All right, here's what's on my radar. It's uh, it's about the community of Washington D.C. You know, and this is a little bit severely soapbox. So brace yourselves. Uh, but I was uh, when we were in break uh, over the weekend. I was sitting next to Rick Davis. Of course, he's the Bloomberg Politics contributor, Stonecore Capital, but also the former campaign manager to John McCain. Uh, and he was telling me about just the incredible, incredible life and legacy uh, of. Roberta McCain who passed away at 108 years old, uh, last week. And the funeral service was, uh, on, uh, over the weekend on, on Saturday. Uh, and my friend Greta Van Sustrom, uh, was also remembering, uh, Roberta McCain as well. And just the legacy that she left behind and, and someone who really was a straight shooter, but also just someone who lived life to the fullest. I didn't know her personally, but, uh, based off of Rick and Greta's, uh, remembering of her, um, you know, it's, it's really, really remarkable. And she wrote a letter to President Lyndon B. Johnson in 1967 when she and her husband were in London preparing for a dinner party at the home of the Iranian ambassador when they learned that their son John, a Navy pilot in Vietnam, had been shot down over Hanoi. As the parent of a son, she wrote, who was shot down in Hanoi last week and is now a prisoner of war, I wonder if you are interested to know that both my husband and I back you and your policies 100% in Vietnam. One reads so much of other opinions that I just hope that you and the people really making the sacrifice believe in our country and in you. May God bless you and keep you strong in your courage and convictions. She was someone, I mean, who was a frequent person on the campaign trail uh, during the McCain uh, candidacy um, and someone who it, w- it was just really an incredible force, an incredible, an incredible force. So here's to Roberta McCain and remembering her. Thank you to the panel and thank you to you for listening. I'm Kevin Cerulli. You're listening to Bloomberg one.